0: Hey listeners, Deathbed Confessions will be taking two weeks off for the holidays. We'll be back with a new episode on January 5th. See you then. As 69-year-old Marcel Hall walks towards the entrance of the Charlotte Hungerford Hospital in Torrington, Connecticut, she allows herself to feel hope, then resignation. The hospital is surrounded by beautiful woodland. It's summer 1985. There's a warm breeze moving the vibrant leaves. In a month or so, all around her will be a blaze of gold. But it's unlikely that she will still be visiting in the fall. Unlikely that Julian Altman, her husband, will live that long. (sighs) Marcel lets out a deep sigh as she enters the hospital building. The sense of acceptance that she felt a moment ago leaves her. Instead, there's only trepidation. Maybe it's the sight of all these sick people, shuffling about or being pushed around in wheelchairs. Or that ever-present hospital smell, disinfectant overlaid with dying flowers. All of a sudden, the future seems uncertain. The past, unbearable. She doesn't know if she can go through with it, visiting him again. It disgusts her just to look at him, after what he did. But she has her reasons. Answers she needs to get from him before he dies. She's thinking of the violin, of course. She knows there's something Julian's not telling her about that damn violin. She's no expert, but it's got to be worth something. Marcel has to act quickly. If she's not careful, she'll be left with nothing. That's why she finally married him, of course after all these years. People will judge her, she knows. How could she marry him after what he has done? They don't understand. She was advised to do it by the lawyer. It was the only way to make sure she didn't lose everything, including the house, her house, which she had stupidly signed over to Julian. No one would seriously believe she was marrying him for any other reason, would they? Love? Marcel lets out a snort of derision. But the sarcastic smile quickly dies on her lips. People will think she knew, that she turned a blind eye to it, but it's not as simple as that. Sometimes you can't see what's right in front of you because you don't want to believe it's true. Marcel always had to survive by her wits, learning early to put on a brave face, Maybe sometimes that meant looking the other way. She put up with his gambling and his womanizing, didn't she? Even his fists. But this time he's gone too far. She's had enough. She's going to make him pay. Marcel walks towards the secure ward where her husband is dying, a prison guard permanently on duty outside his room. She's no longer shocked by her husband's appearance, even though every time she visits, there's less of him lying there on the hospital bed. The end has come on quickly. His health began to decline at the beginning of the year, barely eight months ago. They'd been out to a Chinese restaurant with friends when Julian started complaining of indigestion. Only it wasn't indigestion, it was the first sign they had of the stomach cancer that was now killing him. Although he grew progressively weaker over the months, The cancer went undiagnosed until July. By that time, he was in the Litchfield County Jail. He had been sentenced in March, after pleading guilty to causing risk of injury to a minor. Two days before the sentencing, she and Julian were married in Vegas. So that's how she got here. They managed to keep the worst details out of the papers, and Marcel still tries to minimize it in her mind But the truth is, Julian is a monster. The worst kind of criminal. A child abuser. His victim, her own granddaughter. Prison isn't good enough. He deserves to go to hell. She feels no pity for him. As far as she's concerned, he's brought this all on himself. Maybe not the cancer although even that feels like divine retribution. She always felt there was something diabolical about him. It all came down to that damn violin, of course. That's how he won her heart, and not just hers. It was all part of his tried and tested seduction technique. She stands over him, looking down on his sunken face and wasted body. She's determined she's going to get something out of this. It's payback time. Marcel gets straight to the point, asking him again about the violin. Where is it? She wants to know. Julian flashes her a persecuted look, but Marcel's not having any of it. He owes her. This is the least he can do, give her the violin. She thinks back to everything he's put her through over the years, the lies, the manipulation, the abuse. The shoe is on the other foot now. She's the one with the power, Julian is the one lying on a hospital bed. She likes to think his look is one of contrition, but more likely it's fear. After all, this is a man who never felt guilty about anything he did. Finally, Julian relents. Ed, Ed's got it. She might've known. Ed Wicks is his friend from the Danbury Symphony, the amateur orchestra Julian played with before his incarceration. Wicks also repairs instruments. He did some work on the violin a couple of years ago. Marcel presses. How much is it worth? Julian shakes his head. Is he still holding out on her? Or maybe he doesn't know. It doesn't matter. Once she retrieves it from Ed Wicks, she can get it valued. Julian beckons for her to lean in. Then he whispers a word. Marcel cries out in amazement. A Stradivarius? How did he get a Stradivarius? And then he tells her a story that's so incredible, it has to be true. In fact, she can't help thinking it may be the first time Julian Altman has told the truth in his life. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secrets off their chests, from murder, Fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of a violin, a very special one made 300 years ago by the world's greatest violin maker, Antonio Stradivari. It's about the musician who owned it, Bronislaw Huberman, a child prodigy who went on to become a world-famous virtuoso using his violin to fight the Nazis. Until one day, it was stolen. It's also about another violinist, a jobbing musician named Julian Altman, who serenaded diners and restaurants with a dirty old violin. It's the story of how Altman's musical career took off, thanks to the incredible sound he was able to produce on his mysterious instrument. Of how he used his violin to make women fall in love with him and kept the secret of its magical tone until he lay dying. But the story doesn't end there, because after his death, his family fought over his contested legacy, and the violin that he once played so beautifully became the source of discord. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. As Marcel rings the doorbell of Edwick's house in Danbury, Connecticut, her pulse is racing with excitement. At the same time, she knows that if what Julian has just told her is true, she will have to tread very carefully. A genuine Stradivarius is bound to be worth a fortune. The problem is, she won't be able to sell this particular instrument on the open market. She'll have to talk to her cousin, Harold. He's a lawyer. He'll know what to do. First though, She's got to get her hands on the violin. When Ed Wicks opens the door, he is at first suspicious. He doesn't deny he's got the violin. It's just that Julian was very clear in his instructions. Ed wasn't to give it to anyone, not even Marcel. Marcel lets out a deep sigh. She tells Ed that it was Julian who asked her to get the violin back. Ed says he'll have to ring the hospital and check with Julian. Fine, says Marcel. She's waited long enough. A few more minutes won't hurt. Finally, Ed gets off the phone. He disappears into his workshop and comes back a moment later with a canvas covered violin case. As she takes the case from him, Marcel can't keep a triumphant grin from her lips. She has it. At last, she has the violin. Marcel clutches it to her chest and thinks back to the first time she heard it played. The night she met Julian Altman. The year is 1968. Marcel, in her early 50s, lives in Washington, D.C. She's going through a difficult time. Her marriage of 24 years has just ended in divorce. She patronizes a restaurant with a friend, the table violinist, a handsome, dark haired man with a flirtatious glint in his brown eyes saunters over. It's love at first sound. Marcel Hall falls in love with Julian Altman when she hears him play. Of course, it's not just any violin he's playing. It's the violin. Although she doesn't realize that at the time. Julian plays Lara's theme from Dr. Zhivago. It's Marcel's favorite tune. How did he know? She'll find out later that her friend told him. But at the time, she thinks there's something magical about this irresistible soloist. Marcel watches Julian's fingers glide up and down the neck of the violin. The bow sweeps delicately across the strings, coaxing the most beautiful melodies. She falls under his spell, what she later describes as the beginning of a lifelong obsession. After he serenaded her, the violinist bows deeply and kisses her hand. Cheesy as it is, her heart skiffs a beat. He introduces himself as Julian Altman and asks if he can join them. He's a charming companion, easy to talk to, with a talent for making her feel good about herself. He says he can tell she's got a musical soul. Does she play? No, but she loves music and she knows enough to tell he's a great musician. She's never heard the violin played quite like that. He shrugs disarmingly, but lets it drop that he studied at Juilliard. These days he earns his living as a freelance musician. Fortunately, he's very much in demand for prestigious events in the Washington political circuit. By the end of the evening, they agree to meet again. Pretty soon, the two are dating. Marcel, coming out of an unhappy breakup, it's a whirlwind romance. By 1970, two years later, they've moved in together. But ultimately, her life with Julian fails to fulfill the promise of that first romantic evening. His income as an itinerant musician is precarious to say the least. And his efforts to gamble his way out of debt only makes matters worse. It's also clear that he has no intention of marrying her. She can deal with that, but not his constant philandering. He says he can't help it if women throw themselves at him. She learns not to complain. That only provokes his temper and his fists. Even if he doesn't love her, and it's clear now that he doesn't, you'd think he'd want to protect his precious hands. They are his livelihood, after all. But it's the same as the way he treats his violin. Even though it's obviously a very special instrument, he always leaves it behind when he rolls in drunk after a gig. Maybe he's just one of those men who can't form a deep attachment to anyone. Or anything. Of course, when other people are around, Julian never fails to turn on the charm. And anyone who hears him play would find it hard to believe he could be capable of such cruelty. The romance has long gone from their relationship, but Marcel can't shake off her obsession. It frightens her sometimes, the way he can bend her to his will, like the time she assigned over the house in Bethel, Connecticut. She got it as a settlement after her marriage fell apart. She and Julian moved there in 1982. Even now, she doesn't know what she was thinking. It was all she had, and she just gave it to him. She must have been mad. Either that, or he has some kind of power over her. It all stems from that violin. She can't help thinking. Throughout history, the violin has had sinister associations. Early Christian moralists believed it to be the devil's instrument, leading souls to hell as they danced to the immoral tunes it played. Even as late as 1831, composer and virtuoso Niccolò Paganini was rumored to be possessed by the devil. In the 20th century, the violin's link with evil became less picturesque. Many of Europe's leading musicians were Jewish. During the Holocaust, the Nazis looted the instruments their victims left behind, including priceless violins by the great 18th century makers, Stradivari, Amati, and Guarneri. Of course, this is only one side of the story, the dark side. In the right hands, the violin can equally be a force for good. No musician exemplifies this more than the Polish virtuoso Bronislaw Huberman. Huberman was born in the city of Chesterhova in 1882. His father, an impoverished law clerk, wanted his son to learn the piano but couldn't afford one. So he bought the four-year-old Bronislaw violin instead. A child prodigy, Huberman was soon playing in front of packed audiences drawn by reports of his precocious talent. At the age of nine, Huberman performed the Brahms Violin Concerto in front of the composer. Initially skeptical that one so young could take on the fiendishly difficult piece, Brahms was deeply moved by Huberman's exquisite playing. In 1911, Huberman acquired a valuable violin that had previously belonged to the English violin professor Alfred Gibson, the so-called Gibson Stradivarius. Dating from 1713, it was a beautiful instrument in excellent condition, according to a description written at the time. The fine red varnish which covers it is in a pure state as applied by the maker. It is believed that this varnish is the secret to the Stradivarius' unique tone. By the 1930s, Huberman had established an international reputation. As a Jew, he watched in horror the rise of the Nazi party in Germany. With amazing prescience, he did what he could to get as many Jewish musicians and their families out of Europe before it was too late. In 1936, together with Albert Einstein, he founded the Palestine Symphony Orchestra, which would later become the Israeli Symphony Orchestra. To fill its ranks, Huberman recruited top Jewish musicians from countries under threat from Nazi Germany. He raised funds to pay for the musicians' relocation by performing concerts around the world. At the same time, Huberman's outspoken criticism of the fascists attracted the attention of Joseph Goebbels, chief propagandist for the Nazi party, but he remained undeterred by the threats coming out of Germany. Huberman knew that every time he stood up to play, he was taking a stand against Nazism. On February 28, 1936, Huberman was performing in a fundraising concert at Carnegie Hall in New York. That evening, he chose to play with his equally rare, equally precious Guarneri violin, leaving the Gibson Stradivarius in the dressing room. Just before the intermission, his secretary, Ida Ibikin, made a terrible discovery. The Stradivarius was missing from its case, stolen. As the maestro came off the stage to rapturous applause, Miss Ibikin broke the news to him. Huberman kept his calm, The violin had been stolen once before, in Vienna in 1919, only to be recovered a few days later. Besides, it was insured. He told his secretary not to worry, but to call the police immediately. Then Huberman went back on stage and finished the concert as if nothing had happened. The next day, two articles appear in the New York Times. One is a review of the concert. The other is headlined, Huberman Violin Stolen at Carnegie. Bronislaw Huberman is quoted as saying that he does not believe the Stradivarius was stolen by a musician, as a collection of nine bows worth $1,500 each were left behind in the case. The New York police immediately launch a major investigation. Even the famous Russian violinist Nathan Milstein is hauled off of a train after admitting that the instrument in his violin case is a Stradivarius. But despite the police's best efforts, the thief is not tracked down and Huberman never sees the Gibson Strat again. In compensation, he eventually receives $30,000 from the insurer, Lloyds of London. That's a substantial amount of money at the time, around 20 times the average annual salary in America. Meanwhile, Huberman continues his valiant work rescuing Jewish musicians and their families from Nazi death camps. And the stolen violin begins another phase of its history in the hands of a very different musician, After Marcel Hall receives the violin from Ed Wicks, she takes it back home. The details of what happens next are unclear because Marcel herself has given very different accounts at different times, causing some people to challenge her reliability as a witness. In one version, she claims that she opens the canvas covering of the violin case, as Julian had instructed her to do. There, she finds a number of documents, including photocopies of clippings from the New York Times, the New York Evening Post, and the New York Herald. The articles all date from 1936 and recount the theft of the Huberman Stradivarius. She also finds a 1977 copy of the Strad, a journal for string musicians. Inside, an article about the theft has been highlighted. Marcel can hardly believe what she is reading, and she can't wait to ask Altman about it. Back at the Charlotte Hungerford Hospital, She confronts her husband. Are you trying to tell me that this violin you've been playing all this time is the Gibson? Yes, confirms Altman. Marcel wants to know how it came into his possession. Altman claims that at the time of the theft, he was playing violin in a gypsy band at a club called the Russian Bear near Carnegie Hall. One night, a buddy of his came into the Russian Bear and pulled open his coat, revealing a violin. According to the story, his friend confessed that he had just stolen the violin from Carnegie Hall. The mysterious friend, Altman never reveals his identity, was desperately short of money. He wanted $100 for the violin. Altman went round among the waiters and other musicians, borrowing a few dollars here and there until he had the asking price. It seems the initial plan was for Altman's boss to fence the stolen violin, but his boss didn't want anything to do with it. The Gibson Stradivarius was all over the papers. It was far too hot. He advised Altman to ditch it. But Altman held on to the violin, perhaps because he had played it now and the idea of giving it up was unbearable. He kept the instrument for the rest of his life, playing it at restaurants, nightclubs, weddings, and other functions. The high point of his career was a spell in the National Symphony Orchestra in Washington, between 1940 and 1944. He was even promoted to the first violin's chair. Would he have reached such heights without the Gibson Stradivarius in his hands? We will never know. But it seems Altman's temperament was not suited to orchestral playing. He resumed the life of a freelance musician. He was, by all accounts, very much in demand, even performing once for President Richard Nixon of all people. The years of being played in smoke-filled venues took their toll on the valuable instrument, at least as far as its appearance was concerned. The distinctive red hue of the Stradivarius was obscured beneath layers of black grime. Perhaps this was the way Altman wanted it, and perhaps it was also why he treated the violin so casually. This way, no one would suspect it was a genuine Stradivarius, let alone the famous stolen Gibson Strad. Of course, Altman being Altman, he couldn't resist boasting to his fellow musicians that the violin he was playing was a Stradivarius. Luckily for him, no one took him seriously. After a life filled with lies and a career built on a stolen violin, Julian Altman dies on August 12, 1985. There are three beneficiaries to his will Marcel, who is also named as executrix, Altman's sister, Sylvia, and Altman's daughter by another marriage. Sherry Altman Schoenwetter. For some reason, Marcel delays the funeral until November that year. At first sight, this seems odd. Perhaps she's trying to buy time until she can get the legal status of the violin clarified. If it is the stolen Gibson, then turning it into hard cash would be awkward. The service is held at St. James Episcopal Church in Danbury, Connecticut. A violin is placed on the altar. Ed Wicks notes it is not the one that he once worked on. It seems Marcel is keeping that one hidden away. Marcel travels back from the funeral in the same car as Altman's daughter, Sherry. There's an awkward silence between the two women. There's something hanging in the air. It's Sherry who broaches the subject. She asks Marcel about her father's violin. She remembers seeing him play it all the time when she was a little girl. She asks Marcel if she can have it. Marcel's answer is, no. She tells Sherry that she intends to donate the violin to Western Connecticut State University. If that really is her intention, she never follows through on it. At any rate, the announcement succeeds in closing down the discussion. In the meantime, Marcel has been busy she has had the violin's authenticity confirmed by experts. It is a genuine Stradivarius, no question. She has also been in touch with her cousin, Harold Foster, the lawyer. With Foster advising her, Marcel contacts Lloyds of London, who became the legal owners of the Gibson Stradivarius after they paid Huberman's insurance claim in 1936. It's a delicate situation and Marcel needs to proceed carefully. Under advice from Foster, She tells Lloyds the story about Altman buying the violin from his friend, the thief. It doesn't entirely exonerate Altman, who is guilty at the very least of receiving stolen goods. But it's better than the presumed alternative, that Julian Altman himself was the thief. In May 1987, Lloyds send their own expert, Charles Beer, who flies from London to Connecticut to authenticate the violin. He's armed with an old-color photograph of the Gibson Stradivarius taken before it went missing. This is how Charles Beer remembers the moment he first handled the instrument. As I lifted the violin from its case, I didn't appreciate that Mrs. Hall and her friends and family were still in doubt about the violin's identity. Very slowly, I said, no problem. In the second or two between the two words, Mrs. Hall almost died with disappointment. After that, there was joy all around. Charles Beer takes the long lost violin outside to get a better look at it. He remembers thinking, the violin was clearly a masterpiece, and in the pale sunlight, its handsome wood and red varnish glowed reassuringly. With the identity of the violin confirmed, Lloyds of London agree to pay Marcela a finder's fee of $263,475.75. She gets the money in February 1988 after the instrument has been sold for over a million dollars. But if you let Marcel tell it, the whole reward to me is to bring this beautiful instrument back to the world. With the recovery of the famous stolen Stradivarius, the world's media converge on Danbury to talk to Marcel. She's interviewed by The New York Times, The Washington Post, and Associated Press, as well as by local papers. Crews from NBC and CBS arrive to cover the story for network news. Old friends come out of the woodwork, no doubt intrigued by Marcel's windfall. The amazing story of the instrument's secret life is like something out of a Hollywood movie. So much so that TriStar Pictures contacts her with a pitch. After all that Altman has put her through, Marcel enjoys being in the limelight. She speculates on who she'd like to play in her movie. It has to be Joanne Woodward, she tells the TriStar producers, and she wants Paul Newman for the part of Altman. It's a busy time. There's admin to take care of, too. She files the tax return for Altman's estate, valuing it at just over $39,000. She decides not to include the finder's fee of nearly a quarter of a million dollars that she received from Lloyd's. The way she sees it, that money is hers and hers alone. Predictably, perhaps, Altman's daughter Sherry challenges this. A protracted legal wrangle begins. The other beneficiary of the will, Altman's sister Sylvia, is too ill to get involved and will die before the case is settled. It may not be a coincidence that it's around this time that Marcel changes her story of how the Gibson Stradivarius came into her husband's possession. The version Marcel now starts telling is that she didn't believe Altman when he told her he had bought the violin from a friend. In fact, She was so suspicious that she asked him what this mysterious buddy of his looked like. Altman described him as an attractive, brown-haired, brown-eyed man who was a devil with the ladies. According to Marcel, Altman said, He was a gambler. Whenever we would get short of money, we'd go to Grand Central Station and pick, and he would pick pockets. To which Marcel replied, Sounds to me like you were describing yourself. That's not a very nice thing to say, Altman objected before conceding, you're right though. And now, over several hospital visits, he finally tells her the story of how he came to steal Bronislaw Huberman's Stradivarius. According to Marcel, the crime is not an opportunist act. It's the result of months, if not years, of careful planning. The plot is hatched between Altman and his mother, who seems to be the mastermind. It appears Eunice Altman is ambitious for her gifted son and believes that for him to excel in classical music, he needs a top-class instrument, a Stradivarius, for example. Sadly, such an instrument is beyond her purse. So the only thing to do is steal one. The two of them regularly scour the newspapers together, sipping tea as they research the perfect violin heist. She even moves the family close to Carnegie Hall to facilitate the operation. They target Bronislaw Huberman because he owns two valuable violins. That means if he's on stage playing one of his instruments, the other will be in the dressing room. Another point in Huberman's favor, as a victim, is that he lives abroad, so he won't be around to pursue the recovery of his violin. As we mentioned before, at this time Altman has a regular gig with the gypsy band at the Russian Bear Club, close to Carnegie Hall. It so happens that Altman has often complained of stomach pains to his boss. That night, he tells him he's left his medication at home. But instead of going straight back for his bromo seltzer, he takes a detour via Carnegie Hall, a baggy overcoat covering his Cossack costume. Altman is well-known at Carnegie Hall, as he has often played there with the youth orchestra. Tonight, he's come loaded with cigars, He gives one to the doorman watching the entrance to the artist's dressing rooms, telling him he'll keep an eye on things if the other man wants to go outside and have a smoke. This is Altman's opportunity. He dashes up the stairs to the corridor where Huberman's dressing room is. Unbelievably, considering what's inside, the door isn't locked. Altman is in and out in seconds, concealing the lightweight instrument under his overcoat. Trying not to trip up or draw attention to himself, Altman goes calmly back down the stairs. At the bottom, he even stands next to Ida Ibekin, Huberman's secretary. This must be minutes before she discovers the theft. At the end of the first half of the performance, just as the musicians are leaving the stage, Altman slips out of Carnegie Hall by a side exit, nodding to a few people on the way. He hails a taxi and heads for the apartment building where he lives with his mother and sister. He tells the driver to wait until he dashes in to pick up some medicine. Inside the apartment, his mother stands expectantly in her apron. He nods to her in satisfaction as he rushes past her into his bedroom. He leaves the violin there and locks the door on the way out, handing the keys to his mother. Then it's back to the waiting cab and straight round to the Russian bear to finish his night's work. This is the version of events that Marcel now presents to the world. So why has she changed her story? She claims that she downplayed Altman's and his mother's role in the theft to protect his sister Sylvia, the only honest member of the family, as Marcel describes her. Now that Sylvia is dead, the truth can come out. The problem is, this doesn't quite stack up. As court records confirm, Marcel wrote a letter dated June 1990, in which she admits that Sylvia had known for years that her brother and mother had stolen the Gibson Stradivarius. Sylvia had heard a tape of the two of them discussing the crime, and Julian Altman had threatened to kill her if she didn't return the tape. A more likely explanation is that Marcel calculated that Lloyds of London would be less willing to pay out a finder's fee if they thought she was the wife of the thief who had stolen the instrument in the first place. But once she had the money... Her priority was to hang on to it. All of it. And the main threat to that was Sherry Altman Schoenwetter, Altman's daughter. In 1991, Sherry places a formal objection to Marcel's dubious accounting before the Bethel Probate Court. The court finds in Sherry's favor. Marcel's lawyer and cousin appeals the finding before the Supreme Court presenting Marcel's new version of events and arguing that because Altman stole the violin, it cannot legally be counted as his property, and so should not be included in his estate. It's a clever legalistic argument, but Judge T. Clark Hall is unimpressed. He describes Marcel's actions in keeping the finder's fee to herself as a diabolical deed, equivalent to an unlawful theft of the estate's property. A second appeal in 1996 goes the same way. Marcel is ordered to restore the original $263,475.75 to the estate, plus interest. The total amount she owes is around half a million dollars. But in 1997, living in a trailer park in Claremont, New Hampshire, Marcel declares herself bankrupt. There's no money, she says. How will they get money from me? I'm living on my social security. There's no victory here. According to Sherry Altman Schoenwetter's attorney, Altman's daughter receives not one red cent. Marcel Hall dies on June 18, 2001. Her obituary does not mention her marriage to Julian Altman, merely saying that she was pre-deceased by her husband Robert Hall, the man she divorced in 1968. Today, the Gibson Stradivarius is owned by the world-renowned violinist Joshua Bell, in 2009, Bell, a Jewish-American, played the Brahms Violin Concerto in Bronislaw Huberman's birthplace of Chesterhova, Poland. The performance took place in a concert hall built on the site of the synagogue that had been destroyed by the Nazis. Huberman's violin had come home at last. Hey again, listeners. Just a reminder that Deathbed Confessions will be taking the next two weeks off for the holidays. We'll be back with a new episode on January 5th. Thanks for listening. Next time on Deathbed Confessions. We travel back in time to the year 1967. To the quiet community of Staunton, Virginia, whose peace was suddenly violently shattered. When two young women were found murdered in the ice cream parlor where they worked. The police scramble to find the culprit, but are unable to catch the killer. Four decades later, however, a local outcast by the name of Sharon Diane Crawford Smith begins confessing on her deathbed. Her words reveal not only the identity of the killer, but the dark underbelly that the tight-knit community tried so desperately to hide. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Roger Morris. Supervising editor Derek Jennings. Sound design by Matthias Torresole. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dori McCauley.